Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and this will be the final episode of 2016. I hope everyone has had a wonderful holiday season so far and is looking forward to a fun and exciting New Year's this weekend. 2016 is the year that ACRAC started, and I want to take a moment to say to all of you who are listening, especially those who are regular listeners, A huge thank you for coming on board this year with this experiment and for your comments and support throughout the year. I hope that we'll look back years down the road and think of 2016 as the year that something pretty exciting started that we continued for many years to come. I really enjoy doing this podcast. I learn a ton from getting ready to do episodes on my own and even more so from when I bring guests on and interview them and learn from them. I hope you all have enjoyed it as well and will continue listening in 2017 and beyond. Today's topic is an introduction to airway management. Now, airway management is a huge topic, of course, and could be broken down into many, many individual podcasts. But this is how the American Board of Anesthesiology breaks down the keywords under airway management that they think you should know, at least for your board exam. Now, some of this, for example, double lumen tubes and single lung ventilation, we'll just touch on now, but that can be a whole podcast in and of itself, as can many of these things. So this is going to be basic introduction to these topics. These topics include assessment and identification of a difficult airway, how do you tell if it's difficult, and what tests can you use to try to figure that out, how good are we at predicting that, techniques for managing difficult airway, different types of devices for managing airways from different approaches, different tools, different uh, superglottic airways, look at approach to the surgical airway, we'll look at endobronchial intubation, so again, that brief overview of one lung ventilation, And then we'll look at different intubating adjuncts like bougies and tube exchangers. And finally, we'll go through a variety of different types of endotracheal tube and what they might be used for. All right, let's start with some definitions. So what is a difficult airway? We talk about it all the time, and I think we probably all have some idea in our head of what we would consider a difficult airway. Oh, I can't ventilate, I can't intubate. But of course, you can't have those kind of vague generalities if you're, for example, writing the guidelines. You have to have some set definitions. And so it turns out that, of course, the ASA task force does have some guidelines and they have come up with definitions. So difficult mask ventilation is defined as the inability of an unassisted anesthesiologist to maintain oxygen saturation measured by pulse oximetry at 92%. Or the inability to prevent or reverse signs of inadequate ventilation during positive pressure mask ventilation under general anesthesia. So in other words, if for some reason the patient had high CO2 and you could not adequately ventilate off that CO2, that also counts as inability to mask ventilate appropriately. counts as a difficult 
mask ventilation. So either inability to oxygenate or ventilate through a mask is how you would define difficult mask ventilation. How about difficult laryngoscopy? So difficult laryngoscopy is defined as not being able to get any better than a Lehane grade 4 view. In other words, you cannot visualize any portion of the vocal cords with standard laryngoscopy. That is defined as difficult laryngoscopy. And finally, difficult intubation occurs when the insertion of the endotracheal tube requires more than three attempts or more than 10 minutes. So even if you get it on the fourth attempt or even if you get it after 11 minutes, it's still, by definition, defined as difficult intubation. So how often do we fail at intubation? So this was looked at by Cook and McDougall Davis in 2012, and they found that in, on average in all comers, it's about 1 to 1,000 to 1 in 2,000 uh, elective intubations are not able to be done, failed intubation. So about 0.1 to 0.05%. 1 in 300 so much more common during RSI for obstetrics. So you have a patient having a uh, stat C-section, there's no time for a spinal, and you have to induce them and do an RSI. About 1 in 300 will uh, be a failed intubation. And if you look in the ED or in the pre-hospital setting, paramedics uh, on the ground, or uh, even in the ICU for uh, emergency intubations, it's even more common. So 1 in 50 to 1 in 100. So 1% uh, or even more of the time you can have failed intubations. So this does happen. It's a real thing. The problem is we're not good at predicting when it will happen. So large studies have found that they about 93% of patients who ended up being a difficult intubation were unanticipated. And only about 25% of patients who, who physicians who anesthesiologists thought would be difficult actually did end up being difficult. So we are just, we're bad. We're bad at knowing if a patient is going to be or is not going to be difficult. And I'm going to give you the spoiler right now. I don't have for you a solution. I don't have for you a rule or a group of tests that will allow you to do definitively better at this. There are lots of scattered papers and reports that suggest that this test or that test might be better. Uh, and we'll talk about some of that. But basically, you just have to do the best job you can. And I think the ultimate key here is preparation. Don't ever assume that because a patient looks like they will be an easy intubation that they definitely will. Think through in your head what your plan is if it doesn't work. What's your rescue? Make sure you know your difficult airway algorithm. Make sure you are ready and able to call for help early. Ideally, make sure that your hospital has a situation, has a program in place. We have a DART program, Difficult Airway Response Team, something that you can call and activate if you need airway help so that you're not scrambling unexpectedly when you thought you didn't have any worry, when you thought there wasn't going to be a problem, and next thing you know, you have a patient that you can't intubate or ventilate. Now, of course, you do want to do the best job you can to try to predict what may be happening. And of course, when you look at all comers and you say, well, all, for all comers and all practitioners, we're really bad at it, that doesn't mean necessarily that every one of us is the same. So if you do a really careful job, you may actually be better than others. But that aside, let's look at what you can do if you want to try to be the best predictor you can. So you want to look at things, first of all, Obviously, you're going to go back and look through the chart. Has the patient been intubated before? Was it difficult? What was the, were they able to mask them? Was that difficult? Did they require two-hand mask? Did they require an oral airway, etc.? Also, have they had any surgeries since that last time that you have a chart on them? So if they've, since they last were an easy intubation, had a major surgery on their mouth, neck, or throat, that may completely, of course, change what's going on. And you're obviously going to do a physical exam and look for things like airway obstruction, tumors, uh, deviation of the uvula, deviation of the neck. You're going to look at any imaging and see if there's a tumor or any kind of uh, tissue mass. And of course, listen for strider, a hoarse voice, anything that might be affecting the airway. You will, of course, want to know what's bringing the patient in. Do they have an airway burn? Do they have trauma to the neck? Things like that are obviously going to affect the ability to manage their airway. And then you want to think of risk factors for difficult airway management. And these are things like infections of the neck or oral pharynx, previous surgeries or radiation to the neck or to the throat, 
problems with mouth opening, either from trauma or any kind of soft tissue disorder, arthritis, problems with neck mobility. This could be from a C-spine injury. It could be from rheumatoid arthritis. It could be from a prior spine surgery. It could be from a disease like scleroderma. Obviously, you want to look and assess your patient. Are they obese? Do they have OSA? Do they have a lot of soft tissue uh, around the airway? Do they have uh, neck mass? Do they have teeth that are kind of coming out in all directions or extremely loose? Is there, do they have a small chin? That's, um, do they have micronathia? Uh, are they pregnant? Have they uh, had recent intubations that may have caused some swelling or edema in the throat? Maybe they had a surgery the day before. Do they have a history of angioedema? Do they have any kind of syndrome, like a craniofacial syndrome? Have they suffered any burns, as I mentioned? Have they had trauma to the airway, as I mentioned? And do they have any obvious airway obstruction? And then, of course, you're going to do your physical exam, and you're going to do, among other things, a Malampati score. So a Malampati score, let's first talk about what it is. The one we use today is actually the modified Malampati score. So the original Malampati score only had three classes, and they were a little bit mixed from what we have now, but essentially there was no class four, only the hard palate being visible. What we have now is a class one, two, three, and four system. Class one, the soft palate, the uvula, the fossas, and the tonsillar pillars are all visible. Class 2, the soft palate, at least some of the uvula and the fosses are visible. Class 3, the soft palate and just the base of the uvula is visible. And class 4, only the hard palate is visible. The problem is that it's really not very accurate. So yes, a class 3 or 4 airway does predict difficult intubation, but only about 5% of people who are a malapati 3 or 4 are actually difficult intubations. So there's 95% of people who are a malapati 3 or 4 and are not difficult to intubate. And, of course, the scoring itself is somewhat subjective. So, for example, you are supposed to do this with the patient opening their mouth as wide as they can and sticking their tongue out. But they are not supposed to say, ah. If they do say, ah, that improves the grade. That improves their class score uh, inappropriately. Similarly, if they cannot sit upright, so they are supposed to be sitting upright. If they're not, if they're lying supine, that worsens the grade. And so they may actually have a class two, but they become a class three. So there's some uh, inherent subjectivity along those lines. There was a huge study in the British Journal of Anesthesia in 2011 by Lundstrom and colleagues. They looked at 177,000 patients and found that the, this was a meta-analysis, and they found that only 35% of patients who actually were difficult intubation had been identified as malampati 3 or 4. So before I said only 5% of people who are malampati 3 or 4 will end up being difficult, and then the corollary is that of patients who are difficult, only 35% were actually identified as a malampati 3 or 4. So clearly this is not, at least in and of itself, by itself, a great test to give us information worth doing. It's good to know if a patient's a malampati 3 or 4. That does tell you something compared to if they're malampati 1, but certainly in and of itself not good enough. Now, there are some other tests, which we'll talk about in a minute, that maybe are a little better. Certainly, when you put it all together, uh, you use a variety of tests, may give you some reasonable information. But first, let's just review that when you actually are doing your intubation, you're now looking at a Cormac-Lehane classification, and those are the grades, grade 1, grade 2A, 2B, 3, and 4, of what you're actually seeing during the intubation. So a grade 1, you see of a full view of the glottis. Grade 2A is a partial view of the glottis. A grade 2B is just the posterior extremity of the glottis or only the arytenoids. Grade 3 is only the epiglottis. And grade 4 is nothing, just soft tissue. So if you have a grade 2B view or worse, that is somewhat predictive of a difficult intubation. There are some mnemonics out there to help you remember what are some factors in, in terms of difficult intubations, difficult mask ventilation. So one is lemon, and that uh, L-E-M-O-N, that is uh, to predict things that predict a difficult intubation. So the L for look externally. So in other words, if you're looking at the patient, is there anything obvious that looks like it might be a problem? The E for evaluate the 332 rule. We'll talk about the 332 rule in a minute. M for the Malampati score, O for obstruction, do they have OSA, and N for neck mobility, do they have restricted neck mobility. 
In terms of predicting difficult mask ventilation, there's a mnemonic out there, bones, B-O-N-E-S, so beard, obesity, no teeth, elderly, and sleep apnea uh, or bad snoring. If They may not be diagnosed with sleep apnea, but they may be a big snorer. Interestingly, when I was looking for these, I uh, came across a couple of others. So rods for, to uh, predict a difficult LMA placement, so restricted mouth opening, obstruction, a distorted airway, or uh, stiff lungs or C-spine. Interesting. And then to predict a difficult surgical airway, short. So surgery, prior surgery to the neck, hematoma of the neck, obesity, radiation distortion or other deformity of the neck or a tumor. And obviously, if there's a big tumor or a big hematoma overlying the anatomy of the neck, that's going to make a crike or a trach extremely difficult. So the 3-3-2 rule I mentioned uh, is this, that in patients who have normal anatomy, what you should find is that normal mouth opening should be about three of the patient's finger breaths. So they should be able to hold three of their fingers up and fit those three in between their top and bottom teeth. A normal mandible dimension should allow three of their finger breaths between the mentum and the hyoid bone, and then from the notch of the thyroid cartilage to the hyoid bone should be two finger breaths, so three, three, two. And uh, that if they have three, three, two or more, then that's good. If it's less than three, three or two, then that is worrisome. There are a few studies out there now looking at uh, a couple of different things to look at, one of which is the upper lip bite test. This is something we now have uh, incorporated into our electronic medical record system, so it's suggested that everyone do this test on patients because there is some uh, increased uh, positive predictive value and sensitivity and specificity compared to the malampati test alone. And the way you do the upper lip bite test is you tell the patient simply to try with their lower teeth to bite up as high as they can on their upper lip towards their nose. And you rank them as a class one, class two, or class three. So class one is the best. If they can get all the way up above the vermilion border of their upper lip, then that's class one. If they can get somewhere in between the upper lip uh, itself, the mucosa of the lip, but they cannot get all the way up to the vermilion border, that is class two. And if they can't even get their bottom teeth to their upper lip, they can't get above that curve of the upper lip onto the mucosa, the outer mucosa of the upper lip, then they're a class three. The other uh, thing that was looked at in at least one of these same studies is the ratio of height to thyromental distance as being a better predictor than just thyromental distance alone. And the way you do this is you take the patient's height in centimeters divided by the thyromental distance in centimeters, and the cutoff is 23.5. So if they're less than 23.5, that's good. And if they're more than 23.5, that's bad. In other words, if they're tall with a short thyromental distance, that's bad. If they're short with a short thyromental distance, that's not as bad. So it's kind of correcting for the patient's height rather than just looking at thyromental distance alone. Obviously, this one, because it requires an actual measurement of thyromental distance, and then you have to remember this cutoff of 23.5 is maybe not quite as user-friendly as the upper lip bite test. However, in at least one study, one by Shaw and colleagues, um, it was published in the Journal of Anesthesiology and Clinical Pharmacology in 2013, they found that both of these tests had sensitivities uh, in the 70s and specificities in the 90s uh, for predicting a difficult airway. So a lot better than the Malampati score, at least when used alone. Of course, maybe the best answer here is to use them together. And so, for example, what we now are trying to do is use both a Malampati score and an upper lip bite test together. Let's move on to what is often a tricky question, which is how do you decide whether to intubate someone awake or asleep? Now, obviously, if you have no worries at all, they were recently intubated and it was an easy intubation, you're not going to do an awake intubation in this patient. But if you're worried about a difficult airway, how are you going to decide whether to intubate the person while they're awake or whether to put them to sleep and try it asleep? So you'll notice if you look at the difficult airway algorithm that you're, you should constantly be asking yourself, if you have any concern about difficult airway, should I do this awake? clearly the safe answer, the conservative answer, is to consider doing it awake if you have any worry at all. But of course, doing an awake intubation takes more time, can be less comfortable for the patient. And so if you don't have to do it awake, often we prefer and patients prefer to do it asleep. Still, let's just be very clear that if you're worried, 
If you're not sure you can ventilate the patient, then you want to do the keep them awake and breathing. The key there being ventilate. You don't have to be sure that you can intubate them, but you do have to be sure or as sure as you can be that you can ventilate them, that you can mask ventilate them if you're going to put them to sleep and take away their own drive to breathe. Now, there's a few different things here, and we're not going to go again. We can do a whole other podcast on all the different approaches to how you might attempt to intubate a patient. You can keep a patient breathing spontaneously and asleep. For example, you can give someone ketamine so they're dissociated but still breathing and try to intubate them. I actually like that technique a lot if I'm unsure. You have to often use a video laryngoscope because you can't, they won't necessarily have a slack jaw, so you may not be able to get a laryngoscope in and get a, get a good view without the video laryngoscope helping you. But often if you give patients, and it doesn't have to be a ton, you can give patients 40 or 50 milligrams, maybe half to 0.7 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine. They'll still breathe, but they will not care if you stick a laryngoscope or a video laryngoscope in their mouth. So that's an option. But let's go to the kind of basic question that we started with of awake versus asleep. So as I said, you really want to know, can you ventilate? And remember those risk factors for difficult mask ventilation. So elderly patients, patients with no teeth, patients who are obese, patients who have sleep apnea or a history of lots of snoring, and patients with a, a big beard. So the beard part, at least, is modifiable. The rest are not. But the beard factor is modifiable in the moment. So if you have time and you're really worried, you can always tell the patient, look, you know, if, if, it, if I have to do it to save your life, I may have to shave your beard. And so I've had this happen. I've had some patients say, go ahead. I, I would have shaved it if I knew. So, you know, some patients aren't attached to their beards. But often these guys with these really big long beards have been growing it for years or decades, and they may be truly attached. So it may not be something they want you to do, but touching on that is not the worst idea, just in case, just in case you are in trouble and you need to get that beard out. And you can get rid of a beard pretty quick with the clippers that they use in the OR when the surgeons do their uh, trimming of hair uh, for surgery. In addition to those risk factors, obviously patients who have an active airway obstruction, a tumor, abscess, laryngeal edema, will uh, potentially also be difficult to ventilate. So even uh, you want to keep that in mind as well. Uh, if of the, of the five factors that uh, I mentioned before, the age, the BMI, the no teeth, beard, and OSA, uh, so it's been found that two of these actually has 72% sensitivity, 73% specificity for difficult mask ventilation. So Taking these things into account is one important step to give you a feel for whether you think a patient will be difficult to ventilate. And if you are worried about that, you really should plan an awake intubation. I'm not going to go into the details of how to do an awake intubation here, but that certainly may be done in another podcast. Let's say that you decide to do an asleep intubation, but for some reason you can't use muscle relaxant. Maybe you decide you don't want to because... You're worried about quicker awakening, though certainly with Sugamidex, we now have the possibility of giving a large dose of rocuronium and very quickly reversing it with an emergency dose, a 16 milligram per kilogram dose of Sugamidex. So that may not be as much of an issue anymore. But it may be that someone, you can't use neuromuscular blocker in somebody. Certainly there are a variety of contraindications to succinylcholine, such as hyperkalemia. And of course, there may be cases in which you'd rather not use any neuromuscular blocker. For example, if a, in a spine case, they want to do a pre-flip baseline for their neuromonitoring, or if you have someone with a neuromuscular disorder who you don't want to use neuromuscular blockade at all. And so the question then would be, well, do you need neuromuscular blocker? Why do we even use neuromuscular blocker for intubation? Well, it turns out that on average, using neuromuscular blocker, whether it's uh, depolarizing or non-depolarizing, will improve your view by about one grade on average. And so that can make a huge difference in terms of your ability to intubate. But there have been some studies that have looked at using remifentanil and propofol compared to succinylcholine and propofol and have found that at least if you use a large enough dose, so for example, using remifentanil four mics per kilo, along with two milligrams per kilogram of propofol, produced similar intubating conditions to succinylcholine and propofol. 
So you can use that combination and get pretty similar intubating conditions. And I actually will do that quite often in cases where I'd rather not use any neuromuscular blocker. The one thing to beware of and keep in mind is that Remy, when pushed at that dose, can cause significant bradycardia. So you need to be ready to treat that if it happens. And can cause chest rigidity. And if that happens, you may have to go ahead and give your neuromuscular blocker to relieve that chest wall rigidity. Both of those things are rare, but can happen. And if you're going to do this, you need to be ready. Let's move on to talk a little about the ASA difficult airway algorithm. So this is a nice document that is available. You can look at it. There's a chart that actually lays out for you the flowchart of what to do in which situation. And this is really something you should, if you're involved in anesthesia at all, you should just know pretty much by heart. To summarize, there is the urge to always think about the possibility of whether this could be difficult, whether this patient could be difficult to mask and to intubate, and to consider your different options, and then to always think about whether it should be done awake. Once you've made a decision to not do an awake intubation. So once you're going to induce, you now have basically two pathways. Either you are able to ventilate and intubate, in which case obviously you're fine. But if you cannot, then you have two pathways. Either you are unable to intubate, but you can mask ventilate, or you cannot do either intubation or mask ventilation. So you have the non-emergency pathway, which is you can't intubate, but you can still mask ventilate. And you have your emergency pathway, which is that you cannot intubate and you cannot ventilate. Obviously, in either situation, if you cannot cannot intubate, you should be calling for help. But as long as you can mask ventilate, you have some time. Now, you may lose the ability to mask ventilate. It's not guaranteed that that will stay forever. But you do at least have some time because you can ventilate the patient. So if you can ventilate, you're in the non-emergency pathway, and you're going to try other ways to intubate. So that might be video laryngoscopy. It might be intubating through an LMA, using a bougie, et cetera. If one of those is successful, great, you now have an intubated patient. If you cannot do it after you've tried, you still cannot intubate, you, but you still can ventilate, then you want to think about either waking the patient up, getting surgical airway access, or trying yet something else that you haven't tried. So if you tried several but not all of those alternative strategies, you may try some of those. Of course, if anywhere along the way you lose the ability to ventilate, you now go to the emergency pathway. And the emergency pathway, of course, calling for help. And the first step after you cannot, you realize you cannot intubate, cannot ventilate, is an LMA. So that's the first thing you're going to do is to try to place a supraglottic airway, in this case an LMA or something like an LMA, And either that works, in which case you're now in the non-emergency pathway, or if it doesn't work, now you are truly in the emergency pathway where you're going to, if you haven't already, which you should have, call for help, and then you're going to have to get emergency uh, airway access. So you can, again, if you for some reason didn't before, try an LMA while you're waiting for the surgeon to get their scalpel ready, you can try again. But again, you're really heading this way toward emergency invasive airway access, and that's going to be things like a crike, a trach, or uh, they do say that transtracheal jet ventilation or retrograde wire are options too, but those are probably going to be less likely. What you're going to do in this situation is really have a surgeon, or if there's no surgeon there, you yourself are going to have to cut the neck. So now let's talk about retrograde wire. So this is something that it can be fairly time-consuming. It's, again, probably not something that you're going to do in the emergency situation where the patient's already desatting. You can't innovate, you intubate, you can't ventilate. But there may be a time for a retrograde wire. So when uh, would it be useful? So this potentially, first of all, how do you do it? Let's start there. So you're going to have to topicalize the patient just as you would for any awake intubation. So you're going to have to numb up the airway, uh, and then you're going to place a needle through the cricothyroid membrane, and then you are through your needle, you're going to thread a wire up through the cords, and you're going to look for it and grab it with forceps when it comes out into the mouth, pull it out of the mouth, and then you're going to thread either first a, uh, some kits that retrograde wire kits will come with a uh, catheter that you put over the needle, 
and then you put your tube over that catheter or you can put your tube right over the uh, wire and then thread your tube over the wire down until it bumps up against the cricothyroid membrane, which means it's through the cords. So that's essentially the technique. The um, the times it might be useful would be someone who has distorted uh, or difficult anatomy, but they're breathing spontaneously and they're stable. So you have time and you can keep them awake while you do this. Uh, And then also the advantage of this is that because the last part of this is something coming out through the mouth, as you're threading your wire through the cricothyroid membrane and up towards the mouth, you can always stop to mask ventilate. So you don't, you don't have something sticking out of the mouth and blocking your ability to ventilate. Of course, there are a variety of risks here, so it's time-consuming. Even if you get your wire out through the mouth, there's no guarantee that your tube will successfully follow that wire or catheter down through the cords. And, uh, of course, you can puncture things with that wire. Uh, and when you're initially placing the needle through the cricothyroid membrane, you can puncture the through and through and go through the back wall of the trachea into the esophagus and cause major problems that way as well. Probably the most common quote-unquote rescue device when you fail a regular direct laryngoscopy is, of course, going to be video laryngoscopy. So regular DL has about a 1% failure rate in even in expert hands. And so having video laryngoscopy is a great backup. It has several advantages. So obviously, you can get a better view, uh, even with relatively limited mouth opening or limited neck mobility. You can have other people be able to see and give you direction and help, which also makes it good for teaching. It has, studies have shown generally a higher success rate. It is useful for awake intubation. So I mentioned before giving ketamine and then using a video laryngoscope. You can help um, avoid esophageal intubation because you're directly seeing the cords and there's less hemodynamic response to intubation. It does not reduce the strain on the C-spine. This is something that has been looked at, and there's really no difference in terms of neck movement. So it's not necessarily safer in terms of C-spine, but it does have other advantages, as I've mentioned. Disadvantages of video laryngoscopy are that even if you get a good view, it may be difficult to pass the tube. I think this has probably happened to all of us, where you have this perfect view and you can't get the tube up into the cords. Often that's because you need a stylet like the one that comes with the glide scope to do it. Sometimes you actually have to back your scope out some. That's kind of this counterintuitive move. But if you have a perfect view and you can't get your tube in, sometimes if you pull your your glide scope or your video laryngoscope out a little bit, which will worsen your view, it actually will let the larynx fall down enough so that you can get your tube in there. You can get, obviously, if there's fogging or secretions, they can obscure the view of the camera. You lose your depth perception uh, when you're doing it with a scope. There's always the potential for equipment failure. So you could be halfway in or even have a perfect view, and all of a sudden the the thing shuts off, and now you have no view. It's, of course, more expensive than a regular DL. And there are a variety of different scopes and different sizes, and some of them actually don't fit as well through a patient who has poor mouth opening, uh, trismus, or another reason that they can't open their mouth as well. LMAs, as I mentioned, are really going to be a huge potential rescue device, as well as obviously uh, something you can use to ventilate a patient uh, throughout an entire case. The European approach is to be much more liberal with the use of LMAs, even for prone and, and lateral cases, whereas in most places in the United States, we tend to not use LMAs for those situations, but they can, it certainly can be done. The LMA Classic is the original reusable design. Uh, there's an LMA Unique, which is a disposable version of that. The LMA Fast Track is specifically designed as an intubating LMA, so it has some things like a, an insertion handle, a rigid shaft, and a certain anatomical curvature that are designed so that it uh, will be easier to intubate through it. Uh, the LMA Flexible is softer. Uh, the LMA Proceal uh, has the addition of a channel for suctioning gastric contents and also allows for higher pressures without a leak because of the way that it sits and it secures itself in the oropharynx. The LMA Supreme is like the ProSeal but also has a built-in bite block. And then there's an LMA C-Track which has built-in fiber optics. 
And of course, there are LMA is a proprietary name, the original uh, company that was founded by Dr. Brain. But there are also, of course, uh, other LMA-like uh, devices, other superglottic airways uh, like the AirTrack, uh, and they have similar function to LMAs. One thing to keep in mind that people don't always pay attention to is that when you inflate an LMA, you can cause damage and trauma to the tissues of the oropharynx, just as overinflating an endotracheal tube cuff can cause trauma and ischemia to the tracheal mucosa. So you don't want to just jam air into the LMA without thinking about that. You, you basically want to use the minimum amount of air needed to not have a leak and to be able to ventilate the patient just as you would with an endotracheal tube cuff. Another set of airways that are out there are esophageal airways. These are used a lot in the pre-hospital setting because they're very easy to place, and they don't take, for example, a skill that you would need to do a DL. And so two examples of these are the combi tube and the king tube, and there are others, but they're all the same concept. And so what these are, the king tube for is a, sort of the simplest, and this is just a single tube with two balloons. One, this is designed to go in the esophagus, designed to be placed blindly, and therefore it is most likely to go in the esophagus. And then it has a large balloon that blows up uh, in the oropharynx to prevent air from getting out, and then it has a smaller balloon which would blow up in the esophagus, and then it has holes in between those two balloons where air can be ventilated, and since the tube is sitting in the esophagus, the air coming out above the esophagus will go into the trachea. The combi tube is designed to be placed blind as well, and same deal, it will probably go in the esophagus. There's a 15cc balloon that will blow up in the esophagus and a 100cc balloon that blows up in the oropharynx, and you ventilate into the trachea by coming out through the sides of the tube. However, the combi tube has two lumens, and the idea here is that if you happen to blindly place this thing in the trachea, then what you can do is just blow up your distal 15cc balloon and this use the second port, which goes out through the tip beyond the balloon, just like an endotracheal tube would. And so if you end up in the trachea, you can ventilate the trachea. And if you end up where you normally would in the esophagus, you can still ventilate the trachea. So these are nice because they're, they're easy to place blindly and usually uh, will allow you, certainly the combi tube, one way or the other, should allow you to ventilate. These are not completely secure airways in the way that an endotracheal tube is. I would think of them more like an LMA, that they are good for ventilating, but they don't protect the airway in quite the same way. And so if you think that you can, or if the patient is going to need longer-term ventilation, once they arrive in the hospital, you're probably going to want to switch this out for an endotracheal tube. Though you do want to be careful, because if you're successfully ventilating through one of these tubes, and there's any concern that you may not be able to intubate with a regular endotracheal tube, it, you may be better off leaving this in. So that's going to be a clinical decision you're going to have to make as to whether to remove this and place an endotracheal tube, or whether to use some kind of tube exchanger through this and then place an endotracheal tube, or whether just to leave this in. If you do come down to having to do invasive surgical airway access, so either a tracheostomy or a cricothyrotomy, the traditional teaching is that in an emergency situation, you would do a crike, but that that is only temporary because there's some risk of harm to the cords with it being so close. And so you would want to fairly quickly within a few days, if the patient needs it, convert to a tracheostomy. However, that belief has been called into question with some studies that have shown that there may not actually be any long-term harm to having a crike stay in place for longer than we used to think. And so that's still actively being investigated. The difference, of course, between a trach and a crike is that a crike is through the cricothyroid membrane, where a trach is done halfway between the sternal notch and the thyroid cartilage, which tends to be about the second or third tracheal ring. I mentioned earlier transtracheal jet ventilation as one of the things in the ASA difficult airway algorithm listed under invasive airway access. The problem with this is that actually studies have shown fairly high failure rates in cannot intubate, cannot ventilate situations, as well as a high risk of barotrauma when this is used to ventilate, especially in smaller people or pediatric patients. And so if you're going to do this, you really want to be expert at knowing what you're doing and be really careful. But probably we should be moving away from this and going straight to a crike or an, uh, an emergency trach if we need invasive surgical airway access. 
So let's talk very briefly, just an, a quick overview of some points about single lung ventilation. Uh, there are two ways to do this, double lumen tube versus bronchial blocker. Again, lots of the details of this uh, would need to be covered in their own podcast, but let's just talk briefly the indications for one lung ventilation. So there are some absolute indications. So pus or blood in one lung and that you don't want to contaminate the other lung. A, blanc- a bronchopleural uh, fistula on one side that would not allow you to ventilate both lungs because of all the air escaping through that one side lavage of one lung where you're concerned, again, about cross-contamination to the other lung, a large bullet or cyst on one lung that you are worried about rupturing if you uh, apply too much pressure to it, VATS surgery uh, also, for the most part, needs to have one lung ventilation so that they can get a view with their scope. Other surgeries like lobectomies or pneumonectomies are relative indications but not absolute indications. Those surgeries can be done without one lung ventilation. So you have two ways. You can do a double lumen tube or a bronchial blocker. So what are the advantages of a bronchial blocker? Well, you can, you can isolate a specific segment of the lung, which you cannot do with a double lumen tube. You just isolate one lung, but not a specific segment. A bronchial blocker can be placed beyond the right or left mainstem bronchus to isolate uh, just one segment that you don't want to ventilate. With a bronchial blocker, the size of the patient doesn't matter. So you place it where you place it, whereas you have to be thinking about with a double lumen tube, what is the correct size tube for my patient? And you can't, either it fits or it doesn't, you can't, other than choosing a new tube, you can't adjust where the cuffs on that tube are. And so for certain small patients in pediatrics and and small adults, you may not have a tube that will fit them for a double lumen tube. You, when you're placing a bronchial blocker, it's very easy to ventilate while you're placing it because you already have an endotracheal tube in place. You're placing the bronchial blocker through it. You can ventilate. That's an advantage. And, of course, one very big advantage is that if the patient needs to remain intubated at the end of the case, you can take out the bronchial blocker. You don't have to remove your endotracheal tube. With a double lumen tube, we do take, tend to take that out at the end of the case and replace it with a single lumen tube if the patient needs to continue to be ventilated disadvantages of a bronchial blocker are that they tend to cost more and that they tend not to be as steady in their placement. So they can move around more easily than a double lumen tube can and may become dislodged. Let's now touch on bougies and tube exchangers. A bougie is a long, flexible plastic catheter, usually blue in color with a tip that angles upwards at about a 30 or 45 degree angle so that you can feel the tracheal rings as it bumps against them. This is most commonly used as a rescue device. If you get in there with your DL and you have a grade 3 view, you see the epiglottis, but you don't see cords, you can take a bougie, snake it under the epiglottis, and if you get into the cords, if you get into the trachea, get through the cords into the trachea, you should feel the bump, bump, bump of that angled upward piece at the end bumping against the tracheal rings. Now, one key thing that people don't think about here is that if you aren't oriented with that angled piece up anterior, you may not feel the rings. And I've had this happen to me, and I've had it happen to residents where as they're going in with it, they'll turn their wrist a little, and the the bougie will be facing the side or even upside down. You can be in the trachea and not feel the bump, bump, bump because that angled portion at the end is not up against the tracheal rings. So you want to really make sure if you think you're in, but you don't feel it, twist back and forth a little and see if you do feel those tracheal rings. Tube exchangers, there are two main ones. There's an Aintree intubation catheter and a Cook exchange catheter. The Aintree catheter is larger with a larger internal diameter that can go over a fiber optic scope. So if you've ever done, for example, an intubation where you intubate through an LMA, this is traditionally what you do. You take an Aintree over a fiber, put that through the LMA, feed the Aintree, once you get into the cords, feed the Aintree over the fiber optic scope down into the cords, down into the trachea, and then put a tube over that into the trachea. The Cook exchange catheter is thinner, And this is usually used to place through an existing endotracheal tube if you have to switch it out for another one, whether you're switching a double lumen tube out for a single lumen tube or whether you're switching a single lumen tube out for a new one because, for example, you may have a ruptured cuff. This, in my experience, you have to be really careful. Because it's thin and, and somewhat flexible, 
you can definitely be in the trachea with your exchange catheter and unable to pass your tube over it into the cords. It can happen with the Aintree too, but because the cook tends to be thinner, it's more of a risk. And you should be able, these both come with connectors that you can put on the end that should allow you at least to oxygenate through them, though you may not be able to ventilate because of the long, thin nature of these catheters. But in an emergency, if you cannot get your endotracheal tube over it and back into the trachea, you should be able to put on the connector and at least insufflate some oxygen to buy some time. All right, the final piece here, let's talk about some different endotracheal tube types. First, let's look at the cuff. So there are essentially two ways to make a cuff, high-pressure low-volume or low-pressure high-volume. The standard endotracheal tube that we use is high-volume low-pressure, low-pressure high-volume. The advantage to this is that you don't provide a lot of pressure against any one point on the trachea, and so the thought is that it reduces the risk of damage or ischemia to the tracheal mucosa. On the flip side, we'll look at one tube that does have a high-pressure, low-volume cuff. The advantage here is that it does not allow little rivulets to develop between the mucosa and the cuff, Those rivulets, because of the low-pressure nature of the standard cuff, can allow secretions to track their way down and and is thought to increase the risk of aspiration, whereas a high-pressure, low-volume cuff makes contact very rigidly with the mucosa and does not allow secretions to get down as much. Of course, the big disadvantage is it's applying a lot of pressure to a small area of tracheal mucosa, and those are rarely used anymore. The default, as I said, the common tube is done with a high-volume, low-pressure because of this risk. All right, ray tubes. So there's an oral and a nasal ray. These actually were named after their inventor. If you ever wondered what, why is it called a ray tube, it's R-A-E. It stands for Ring, Adair, and Elwin, the three gentlemen who invented it. That was in 1975. The oral ray comes out of the mouth and makes an acute bend so that it goes down over the chin. The nasal ray comes out of the nose, makes an acute bend, so it goes up over the forehead. And the idea here is simply that you get them out of the way of the surgical field. The uh, There's a great website that will show you pictures of all of these tubes that's done by uh, UCSF in San Francisco. Uh, it's their airway management uh, website, and it's available at aam.ucsf.edu. I highly recommend going there and taking a look at all these tubes. Uh, I will, of course, do my best to explain and describe them, but if you want to see them, that's a great website to go check them out and has all of this information that I'm discussing. So, again, advantages here is that the ray tubes open up the surgical field. The disadvantage is that you can't control the depth because that bend is built into the tube. The only way to get a longer tube is to have a larger tube, and so that's how you control it. But you can't, with a regular tube, you can advance in or or pull out. You can't do that. Uh, At least you can't advance in any further with a ray tube. An MLT tube stands for a microlaryngoscopy tube, and this is just essentially a long, thin tube. So it's most commonly a 5.0 tube, but instead of a regular 5.0 tube, which is both short and thin, this is a small diameter but long uh, tube. So it allows you to use it in a regular size adult, whereas normally a 5.0 tube, you'd have to have a short adult because it wouldn't be long enough for a regular-sized adult. This is for a regular-sized adult, but where you want a thin tube. So for, of course, like vocal cord surgery, where you want the surgeon to have more room to operate, the advantage is that, that there's more room. The disadvantage, of course, is that because it's a long, thin tube, you will have higher peak pressures and need a longer expiration time for the patient to be able to exhale completely. A laser tube. So these are regular PVC tubes, uh, polyvinyl chloride, which is what most tubes are made out of. But they're wrapped both in foil, and then that foil is wrapped in a non-reflective coating. And this is obviously used for laser surgery to protect the polyvinyl chloride, which is flammable, from the laser. But what's left is the cuff. The cuff can't is not wrapped uh, in anything, and so the cuff is the most vulnerable part. And that's why with these laser tubes, the cuff is filled with blue crystals, which if you inject saline into the cuff, it will dissolve into a blue liquid. 
This serves as an indicator for rupture. So if the cuff ruptures, you see the spillage of blue fluid. But also because it's fluid as opposed to air, it'll potentially help extinguish the fire. And that's a good thing as well. These are high-pressure, low-volume cuffs. So again, different than the standard low-pressure, high-volume. It is a high-pressure, low-volume. And part of that is that they want higher pressure so that it will spray out and be obvious if the cuff ruptures uh, and to help extinguish that fire. Armored or reinforced tubes are standard PVC tubes but with a wire coil wrapped throughout, which allows it to bend much more without kinking. There's a great picture on that UCSF website of a tube tied into a knot and yet still not kinking. So it can be useful in prone surgery, neurosurgery, facial surgery, when you may want to bend or move the tube out of the way. Interestingly, this tube still needs a bite block. If you bite hard enough on this, you'll actually bend the wire and create a permanent kink uh, if a patient were to bite down on it. And so you don't want to mistake this for an invincible tube where you don't need a bite block. You may think, well, can you go in an MRI with these? Turns out that they're MRI conditional, which uh, regular tubes are too because of the small metal spring in the pilot bloom. So it's probably fine, but you will want to check with your institution's MRI policy. They are, because of the wire reinforcement, they don't have that preset slight curve to them. And so if you are someone who likes to intubate without a stylet, with these, you really do have to have a stylet or at least have one ready because it doesn't have that preformed slight curve. And finally, uh, the Parker Flex Tip Tube. So this is a, a nice tube with a tapered curved tip, which is designed to pass easily by airway structures like the arytenoids and the cords without causing trauma to them. And so it can be very useful in Seldinger techniques, like if you're intubating over a fiber optic scope or over an airway exchange catheter, Often, as I mentioned before, you are, you're at risk of getting that tube. Even if your exchange catheter is in the trachea, your tube can get caught up on structures on your way down and may not be able to pass, but this tube is designed to pass more easily. It also has a Murphy eye on both sides, uh, and you can see some pictures of it on the aam.ucsf.edu website. All right, that's it for today. If you have comments, please go to the website, accrac.com, that's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, and leave a comment. Do you have any thoughts on any of this airway approach? Is this how you do it? Do you have other techniques? Are there tests like the upper lip bite test or others that you use, that you like, that you think are well-supported by the evidence? We'd love to hear it. It would be good learning for me and for anyone else who will be able to see your comment on the website. You can also, on the website, Join our mailing list, ACRAC's mailing list at the upper right-hand corner. Just click and enter your email to get updates on the show. If you have any comments at all, leave them there. Of course, you can always email me, ACRAC at ACRAC.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for all your support in 2016, the inaugural year of ACRAC. I hope you had a wonderful year and wish you the best possible New Year's celebration and the best start you can possibly have to your 2017. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for everything you did this past year. And remember, every day, no matter how you're feeling, no matter how tough it's been, whether you haven't received any recognition, whether you feel like you're not appreciated, you are. What you're doing out there every day is truly valued, is truly appreciated and is really important. Happy New Year. See you next year.